Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles. This is a new series of conversations with scientists and science authors in addition to the usual weekly Sunday Q&A live stream and podcast. And you can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. We really do need your support as much as possible. We're trying to keep making loads of different things. And due to the end of kind of all of our live work, uh, patreon.com is the way that we're trying to fund ourselves at the moment. So thank you very much. Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Let me start by saying thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, you should have received some news yesterday, which is very exciting. I will let everyone else know about that very soon indeed. If you're a Patreon supporter, you'll also be listening to an extended edition of this episode, which is one of the perks of pledging your support to us here at the Cosmic Shambles Network. Make sure you are subscribed to the Book Shambles and the Science Shambles podcast and you can rate and review those five stars on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. On the normal Book Shambles last week, we chatted to our good friend Natalie Haynes, who you might best know from the BBC show Stand Up for the Classics. And on the just past Sunday Science Q&A, we delved into the world of particle physics with Linda Cremonisi and Achinta Rao from CERN, so make sure you listen to that as well. That is all of the admin for today. Here is Robin and Joe. This is fantastic. It's called The Human Cosmos by uh, Joe Marchant, whose last book, Cure, was also uh, wonderful. And um, we've got Joe here now. Uh, but Joe, I want to I'm going to get straight in there and talk about why you wanted to write this book because I, I love the fact that it is, it kind of has a, a level, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, this idea of re-enchantment uh, with our connection with uh, the universe, our connection with the sky that we see and and that journey which happened over time which led to detachment from from that that sense of our almost physical relationship with the stars around us and the planets. Why, why did you decide this was going to be the subject for the next book? Yeah, it was a couple of things coming out of previous books that I've written. So my first book, Decoding the Heavens, was about the Antikythera mechanism, which you might know about this 2,000-year-old clockwork device that was found on an ancient Greek shipwreck. And it, it, it's this, you know, dozens of bronze gear wheels, this complicated machine that we wouldn't have expected to find from ancient Greece. And it turned out to be a model of the heavens. It, it drove pointers showing the position of the, the uh, sun, uh, the moon, the planets in the sky. So looking at that got me really interested in the idea that, you know, people all through history have been completely entranced by the heavens and, and had this sort of wonder at it and wanted to understand it. And yet, seen very different things into the sky in the sky that we might today um, and the fact that we're probably the first culture ever to be losing that view of the stars with light pollution now you know instead of thousands of stars in the sky in a city you just see a few dozen i think 80 percent of people in europe and the us now can't even see the milky way so there's this view of the heavens that all of humanity has had and we're losing so i was interested in looking at well, what has that meant to people through history. What are we losing? Does that matter? And then from my last book, Cure, which was looking at the role of the mind in, it might seem a bit unrelated, but that got me quite interested in the relationship between mind and body, sort of the objective and subjective view of the world, if you like. And in medicine, certainly, that was looking at how Western medicine had, I think, gone a bit off track in just treating us as physical bodies and not seeing our 
experience you know our emotions our beliefs um as important um, and i was arguing that medicine needs to take account of that you know we're human beings not just physical bodies and i think in how we relate to the universe the cosmos around us as well you know it, it, we can see the universe as purely this scientific um model i suppose you know the particles and forces that are out there and that's a kind of you know a fantastic understanding that we've built but what about our experience of the stars so those two things kind of came together i suppose that was what i was interested in investigating well i think it's uh, what i like you you talk you know with the the wonderful flamboyance of some of the stories and some of the characters that uh, live in the sky that are part of the sky in the in the, in the early part but and it, and it reminded me of the fact that it's not merely science it also feels like that a lot of our religion so bloody you know it, it detached it from any excitement i went around the i think it's the the museum of asian culture in singapore last year mm. and one of the floors is just packed with all of these different gods and pranksters and it's fantastic and then you go into one room which is just lots of jesus on the cross and you go <laughs> we went from this fantastic you know th this this vision of all of these and and they're not omniscient and they're not omnipotent and they're naughty and sometimes they're vile and sometimes they're wonderful and sometimes and it turns into this this the story is watered down to there's a God who's angry with you quite a lot of the time. And he's just one, one God and, and that's it. And so it does feel that we somehow with discovery and perhaps also for political reasons as well, we've, remo we've removed a lot of the, the great narratives. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. So with religion, so obviously that, you know, the, our view of the stars has inspired a lot of science, but religion as well, and lots of other things that I guess we'll talk about. But yeah, that going from many gods down to one, that there was something else that happened with monotheism, which was initially these gods were part of the cosmos. Like you say, they weren't omnipotent. They had sort of failings and, and limitations and, and characters and all these stories. And, and when you go to monotheism, you have this sort of omniscient creator that somehow supernatural outside of the universe. And the universe was no longer something to sort of worship and celebrate in its own right. It was the product of this separate creator. And I think that was quite a, a significant moment that changed that, that relationship that we have with, with the universe that we're in. It's a, you know, ritual obviously comes into this. I, I was thinking the other day, um, Helen Sharman, I think, was talking about this. You know, there's a day in Russia, which is basically Yuri Gagarin Day. And the, here is this celebration of a great moment in space exploration. We don't really have many rituals around those kind of achievements or achievements of scientific discovery, do we? No, that's a really lovely idea. That would be great if we did. Um, yeah, I don't know why. And although our, um, you know, if you look at Christmas and Easter, for example, so our Christian rituals, they do come from the sort of the, the, the yearly movement of the sun through the sky. You've got the sort of Christmas that celebrated the birth of Christ um, just after the winter solstice, when the sort of the sun has been has been traveling south and the days have been getting shorter and then the sun's reborn and starts coming back. And then Easter is celebrated just after the, the spring equinox when the days are starting to become longer than the night. So we don't have those scientific discoveries, but we do have sort of those kind of cosmic milestones, if you like, that are celebrated. But yeah, I, I love the idea of finding some, you know, key moments that changed our understanding of how the universe works and starting to celebrate those.
Well, I, I was fascinated in, I was talking to a teacher uh, who is, is uh, you might know him, Alam Shaha, who wrote a, a wonderful book called The Young Atheist Handbook. And um, and he was talking about his um, his disappointment at a teacher's conference, at the fact that when the question came up, why do we teach science? The answer was always, that's how the world works, and that's how your computer works, and then we understand it. And none of it was about the fact that there this this wonder this delight that the fact that you you may understand i don't but some people may understand the equations that give us some semblance of comprehending those very first moments of of well not the very first moments but nearly the very first moments of the universe but the actual idea of the big bang itself is something so remarkable and strange that aren't we allowed also to see it to have some sense which is detached from just information because I feel I felt a lot of what is in your book seems to be so yes you can accept a, a kind of rational mysticism is permissible I like that term yeah <laughs> rational mysticism yeah it, it, exactly so I think there's different kinds of wonder as well so you can have the, the sort of wonder that's attached to um, it's more cognitive, like you you understand something scientific about how things work and you have that wonder. But then there's also that kind of just jaw-dropping awe at the vastness of, of nature or the stars that completely stops your thought, that pushes you kind of away from rational thought and, and you're just like, whoa. Like there's this great story that uh, Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, tells on his first spacewalk and he you know, he was supposed to be attaching a robotic arm to, to something. And he said that as soon as he stepped out of the of the space station, like all of the thoughts of that temporarily left his head. And he said he was attacked by raw beauty. And he said it's it stupefies you, it stops your thoughts. So that kind of awe, I think we also need, and that's the kind of feeling that people often describe when they're looking at the stars from Earth as well. So there's the sort of scientific curiosity we can solve this mystery this is how it works isn't that amazing but then there's also that that thought stopping or and there's a lot of research showing that that actually has these really profound psychological effects on us you know it makes people more curious more creative but it also makes them nicer people um people make more ethical decisions after feeling awe. they are more likely to make sacrifices to help others they care less about money they care more about the planet they feel, feel more connected to other people so i think that's showing that you know, there's this sort of, we need that kind of mathematical, rational, logical way of thinking about the world, but we also need that kind of wow, sort of physical connection to nature where we stop looking at us, you know, our screens and we actually look up at the reality of the stars. And that's something that's becoming harder and harder to do with, you know, our modern lifestyles and, and artificial light pollution. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's that realisation as well, when you look at that we are rare, that's a different thing to understanding stars and hydrogen and helium and, you know, understanding actually genetically what makes life to, and, and the chemistry of it. Just the rarity of everything, living thing that is around us should have, I think, that moment of I, I loved all that stuff that you I think is in the final chapter, isn't it? The research about awe. Um, in terms of your awe early on, now you talk about places like Kalanish, which is up in the uh, Hebrides, which you talk about Stonehenge, talk about uh, an incredible uh, uh, tomb, it's generally considered to be a tomb, isn't it? In Newgrange in, in mm -hmm. Ireland. Obviously, you visited some of these places. Did you have certain... Was there anywhere in particular where that sense of awe, away from the incredible astronomy and the incredible calculations, that just the awe of that experience floored you? 
<laughs> so yeah, so I've, I've, I've certainly had that looking at the stars, which I talk about in the book, that feeling. But then in terms of the sort of human connection, Lascaux Cave was one that really connected with me. So you you, you can't go into the original um, cave. So this is in France, the sort of 20,000 year old cave that's from the pale, these paintings from the, the Paleolithic. Um, but there's a reconstruction of it, which is really lifelike. And it's just amazing to see that just that like the, the amount of time 20,000 years and you're and you're looking at these paintings that have been done by people that clearly had minds and imaginations you know and personalities like us um, and it's just you know it's a beautiful place and it's a little bit like a cathedral in a way these gorgeous paintings and often you know Lascaux is seen as being about celebrating nature you've got these horses that uh, oryx bulls stags but the reason that I look at that in the book is because um, there's also an idea that these aren't just animals but in some cases they're maps of the stars that people saw animals in the sky and there's one bull in particular with these six very characteristic pattern of six dots above its shoulder and you see that pattern of six dots in lots of different art around the history from um around the planet from siberia to native america and they represent the star cluster pleiades and these dots are above the shoulder of this oryx bull and the interesting thing is that the pleiades star cluster is at the shoulder of our modern constellation taurus so i was looking at the evidence around could that be a star map um, but it's just that connection with that sort of first glimmer of, of human consciousness that I think when you see those those paintings it's just amazing and then also that idea that they too were sort of so interested in the, in what's happening in the sky as well and you really get a picture that for them you know we kind of separate earth and sky you know you've got what's happening on with the stars and the, the planets and that's up there and then you've got you know what's happening in nature but for them it was absolutely one system you know the rising and settings of constellations through the year um, um, would have been completely bound up with the changes that they were seeing around them um, in nature. So just one kind of connected system. And I think that is something that we have, have lost a little bit now. Well, I love all that stuff about Lascaux. I, lo I love that bit because it's also it's what eighty years now, roughly, is it? Uh, that since it was rediscovered, I, I, was it nineteen forties? Yeah, is it nineteen forty? Second World War, anyway. Yeah. Um, that also a change of interpretation of that and you as you said just then you know this, this is it starts off being wow this is impressive kind of piece of art and then to look at it and and you talk about this in various ways in the book of, of how we are changing our understanding of our capabilities and our needs and it seems that 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 Lascaux is one of those places where that that is most in the spotlight yeah it's really interesting i love sort of archaeology and those human stories of how people understand things over time and how that changes and so you've had all of these different theories from um it was just art for art's sake didn't mean anything or these are symbolizing sort of different animals or tribes and sort of were like sort of had this sort of magical um kind of connotation to them and then there was a more statistical approach of sort of measuring exactly how many horses do you have here and how many stags do you have here and this represents this that represents that um and then this guy um, norbert ojala comes along and he spent um so rather than being a sort of art guy he was more of a scientist so he was interested in in the geology and how they were painted and you know he spent about 10 years studying these paintings um and sort of came to know them very intimately and, and for example found that when you have horses, oryx and stags they're always painted, if they're overlapping they're always painted in that order and they're always painted 
at a certain time of year, which is the mating season for that animal. So came up with the idea that those that the paintings are being painted to, to it's sort of representing that kind of cycle of life through the year, if you like. And and he felt that it was very much representing the sky as well as the earth. So you you see. Um, yeah, just the our ideas about things changing and our ideas about people's capabilities changing as well. I mean, that's something you see at Stonehenge as well. You know, we've had so many different theories about that from, um, you know, it was a very complicated eclipse predictor or it's a site of healing or it's a temple, you know, a sort of temple to the dead or a war memorial or it's a landing site for alien spacecraft. So you learn a lot about the sort of... Um, concerns of the people of the time in terms of the in interpretations that we, we have of these different sites. Do you feel that there is, uh, um, in, in terms of, that there is a scientific embarrassment if we get too far away from the purely material? Um, and so that sense of celebration and going back again to that idea of adding some form of ritual, you don't have to believe that the, you know, a planet is a god to still feel that awe that you mentioned about it. You can have that. What do we, you know, are, are the ways that you've thought about how we can manage to stride that? Because I've got this lovely book. I don't know if you ever saw this exhibition. Uh, it was at the Haywood, uh, The Alternative Guide to the Universe. And it was filled with all manner of kind of eccentric artists who had done strange things in considering their ideas of the cosmos, considering their ideas of particle physics, right? And a lot of it is bunkum, but it's fun bunkum to the extent that you don't have to believe what they're doing to still get the joy of their interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've sometimes we get pushed into this feeling that if if you try and talk about anything beyond the sort of purely material and rational, that that's somehow, I don't know, mystical or, or, or pseudoscience or, or supernatural. Um, and, and I don't think we have to uh, go to the supernatural for this. I, I think we can have, you know, awe and wonder and, and, and joy and enchantment and explore different ideas about things and, and think that our experience is important. You know, it's important to know about the universe, but seeing the stars for ourselves is, is also important and I think we can embrace all of that without having to go to some place of believing in the, the supernatural I, I think it's just something that we can have alongside our rational understanding so I, I, like you say I think art is a, is a brilliant way to explore those ideas but also um, within science as well you know it's showing us how we should also prize i suppose our our experience so that work on awe i think is really important at the moment you know we've got this climate crisis which you know you could argue stems a little bit from treating our environment as this sort of physical inert backdrop and seeing our kind of own daily concerns and not realizing or not acting on the impact that our actions have on the bigger picture and this work on awe is telling us that when people feel that feel awestruck um, it's it's doing things <laughs> to our brains if you like it's shifting our perspective um, so there's some interesting neuroscience that as well as people feeling more connected they also sign their own names smaller they estimate their own physical size as smaller and the brain scans are showing that activity in the default mode network in the brain which is associated with the sense of self is reduced so there's this idea that awe induces um a small self where instead of our own sort of selfish daily concerns seeming to be all important and all encompassing 
that's being pushed down and people are instead feeling themselves as connected to something bigger. So they're seeing the bigger picture. They're, um, and so it kind of makes sense then why people start to care more about the, the planet and, and, and the environment. So I think we sort of need that counterbalance. So we need science, obviously, to understand, you know, the, the state that we're in and, and perhaps different solutions to the crisis. But then you also kind of need this um, awe, enchantment, wonder, whatever we want to call it, to kind of get us to a place where we're seeing the bigger picture as well and to sort of care enough to, to, to act. Um, so I think that's just one example, um, you know, in medicine as well, when I was in Cure, when I was writing Cure, um, I think it's, you know, I was saying that our, whether we feel cared for, whether we feel safe, you know, that connection that we have with other people is hugely important um, in terms of people's health and it's affecting their physiologies. And so we have to be able to encompass that, you know, into a rational scientific medical system. So it's just all these cases where it, I think it's not just about seeing a sort of physical reality out there, but re realising that our experience matters. And I, I think we can do that in a sort of rational way. I don't think we need to suddenly start believing in supernatural gods or miracles or, or anything like that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how the the, the need to anthropomorphise, to, to that that is where the myth comes from. And in fact, that bit of going, you don't necessarily have to turn something into this, you know, this figure in a chariot to because i was wondering it's, it's something that i kind of one of the obsessions at the moment is that whole nature of big history and again there the, the seems to be a divide that happens in our minds in our education system there are people who love history and there are people who love science so history only starts with civilization and then everything before that and yet our history is coming from something which was you know nothing but nothing with a lot of potential as people sometimes describe that moment before uh, uh the universe and all of those different things about all the elements that make us the 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 fact that those explosions that occur those enormous explosions in the universe and in the point of those explosions some of those solid things around us that we make you know jugs from and computers from and all those things they have all of those things seem to be part of history and, and i'm wondering you know that one of the problems problems is the specialization that happens within the education system yeah definitely i mean i mean it's hard isn't it you know the more you get to know it's it, you can no longer know everything so we you know we need to specialize obviously but i think i hope there's also room for that bigger picture view i mean that's what i'm trying to do in human cosmos is just take a sort of a long view, a deeper view of the human history of the cosmos. So rather than the Big Bang to Earth, looking at, you know, the Paleolithic and how humans have seen it over time, but also show all the different ways in which people have sort of related to the, the cosmos. So I think, you know, we do need to sort of zoom out with that sometimes. And I think with science, it's interesting because sometimes it could really help to connect us with the universe. You know, we can see far beyond our senses ever could, you know, deeper, you know, we can see farther back in time, we can see, you know, just billions of, of light years away, you know, we can see all of these different kind of cosmic events and objects that we never would have imagined before. And I think that's amazing. And, and we know that, you know, like you were saying, the elements that make up our bodies were sort of forged in stars. So it gives us that connection we never could have had. But there are also other times where I think it can separate us. Um, so, for example, um, one of the things I look at in the book is, is the biological influence of the moon. And that's something that's been dismissed um, by scientists. Um, 
not so much recently, but but in the past, that as, as oh, there's no possible way in which the moon could affect us, and um, it's been dismissed as a sort of pseudoscience. You know, we have these myths about the moon influencing fertility, for example, or mental health. But actually, more recently, there are um, molecular studies looking in a, a lot of aquatic species in particular showing that there are genetically determined lunar clocks that hundreds of genes vary with lunar phase um, and those researchers are saying wouldn't be at all surprising if that was also the case for humans and quite a few interesting studies showing effects of the moon on um, menstrual cycles on sleep and mental health for example so there's something where i think perhaps because of all of the folklore and the myths this idea was dismissed um, but now that it's being looked at more seriously, we're realizing that there are effects of the moon. And then obviously the, techno the technology that we have is really separating us from cosmic cycles. You know, we don't really need, you know, we can heat our environment and light our environment. We don't, we're not really living in, um, in sort of physical contact with the sun and the moon in the way that we would have been before. And there's quite a lot of research now showing that that's actually having quite damaging health effects and that light pollution is affecting wildlife as well. So. I think, yeah, it's interesting. I think science can be this wonderful thing of giving us a different perspective on the universe and connecting us with it. But if we're not careful, it can it can also sort of disconnect us in a way that can be harmful as well. I don't know why for some reason when I was reading about that, I, I started to think again more and more about reality and thinking that the trouble with reality is that we supposedly have reality and nonsense, whereas in fact there's hard reality and then there's reality which gets softer and softer and softer. Eventually it will be, but but reality is a curve. There is things that are as close as possible to being an objective truth. And then there are things through our perception, and, and I feel, again, that bit where it feels like the hard divide between art and science, the hard divide between reality and myth, the hard divide, that they're not. They're very, there's a very long blurred area between both those it's extremes. It, it would be so nice if there was just this sort of hard line <laughs> between we can go, right, yep, yeah, that's right, that's true, and that's nonsense. But yeah, unfortunately, and you know, especially at the, it's so important to try and distinguish between, um, you know, what is sort of actually happening out there that we can all agree on whether it's coronavirus or whether it's climate change you know we ha we we have to kind of hold on to you know the idea that we can objectively determine what's happening people can't just have wishful thinking and, and just say that these things aren't, aren't happening um but on the other hand it, it isn't always um bl black and white in terms you know they are going to have different um perspectives on things so just looking at um biological clocks for example and how you know science a few decades ago very much um, focused in on the effects of the sun and the sort of inner molecular clocks and determined by genes inside our cells um, and then there was this kind of maverick guy who thought that, that we were sensitive to these sort of subtle external cosmic cues and, and in particular he was interested in the effects of the moon and he pretty much got thrown out um, as just pseudoscience in the end but actually now we're realizing that he was also right that, that we are sensitive to much uh, more subtle cues from the cosmos than we thought, um, perhaps even sort of little um, tiny ripples in the Earth's magnetic field that are caused by the movements of the, the sun and the moon. So it, the, the way we look at the world and the questions that we ask kind of are sort of affecting what we find as well. So it is very difficult to unpick sometimes you know so i think you're right that it's a scale there's definitely clear nonsense and then clear things that we can all agree on um 
but it's it's not quite as black and white as we would like it to be um but you know i think that's that's a good you know i i, I love that actually because it means that our what we be, what we believe and we imagine and we think does also matter you know that is also part of reality for me yes there's the physical reality out there but then our mental universes also exist you know but you know they're not physical re realities but that they're also here you know we're experiencing them yeah I, I think hard reality one side hard nonsense the other side then there's a little bit of soft nonsense you know all of that i i, I think yeah there's it's just there's a lot more time to play if you do that yeah the uh um the final thing i just want to ask you was as a young scientist when you were first studying science is there something now that you you would go wow me when i was at university studying science would consider this to be utter nonsense and now not merely am i fond of it but i really believe that this there, there is a level of reality to it as well um, i'm trying to think if there's a specific thing i i was very um i was very black and white about science when i was um at university and doing my phd um and I would have, I was very resistant to any, I mean, for me, science was the route to, to truth, pretty much, you know, that was the only way of finding out sort of knowledge about the world and everything else was imaginary. Um, and I'm, I'm just not as black and white about that now. I think that in science, like, I, I love science, but the, the, the questions that we ask also determine what kinds of answers we find and how those are framed and, and the sort of the, the metaphors that we have um, in our science. Um, so you know, I mentioned the example of the, um, the, the biological clocks, for example, that you will uncover a particular picture of the world. And if you'd thought about things in a different way, I think science is like a really bright, intense flashlight that gives you an incredibly accurate picture, but it's quite a narrow beam. And if you turned your beam a different way, you would see something different and it's all reality that's out there and i think we just need to remember that um a little bit um yeah <laughs> oh well thank you very much for joining us so the human cosmos is out it's out now isn't it i think it is uh weeks ago i think yeah, so Human Cosmos out now, uh, Canongate, and it's uh, yeah, it's I, I think it's I think it's a very important I think finding that uh, that ground which kind of allows more people in as well. You know, if you see what I mean, I think sometimes it can seem so rigorous the divide um, between the, the 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 mythical and uh, and what might be seen as hard science, and realizing that the, the the part that the human brain plays in that, the part our perception plays in that, and as you said as well, sometimes ideas that appear to be nonsensical if we become too almost solipsistic. I mean, that, that it feels this is very uh, a book of anti-solipsism. Just, I think. Well, Chris Hadfield said something like, he said that what it made him realise was the, the power of the presence of the world as revealed to me by my ability to see it. And I just love that. You know, that's, he said that that was something that he hadn't learned in any books or, or, or lectures or in his training. It was just that, yeah, just the immense meaning and power of the fact that the earth is here was brought home to him in that moment and i think that it's that feeling that we also you know need to capture brilliant thank you very much joe human cosmos thank you very much for listening remember to like and subscribe and rate five stars on apple podcasts the science shambles podcast patreon.com slash cosmic shambles is where you can go 
to support the show and get extended editions of these podcasts and lots of other stuff as well. Back next week. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.